This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, I wax philosophically with Dennis Shirley about his new co-edited special issue of the East China Normal University Review of Education, entitled Beyond Well-Being, Educating for Wholeness and Purpose. In our conversation, we discussed the future of education and the dialectic between well-being and learning. The obvious arch enemy here would be standardized testing, and especially its nefarious uses in the U.S. and the U.K. to, you know, shut down schools. Dennis Shirley is Dungany Faculty Fellow and Professor of Education at the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College. He's co-editor with Stanton Wortham and Deoxon Kim of the latest issue of the ECNU Review of Education. Dennis Shirley, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, Will. How are you? So congratulations on co-editing this latest special issue. It's really wonderful. I want to start today by thinking about COVID-19 and why during COVID-19 there's such a focus on the well-being of children and schools. I mean, to me, it seems a bit strange to think that schools are only now thinking about the well-being of children. Isn't that something they always should have been focused on? Right. So that's a great philosophical question. And I think that the sad answer to your question is that schools have not always been focused on well-being. Um, In fact, that they have neglected it. I, I think that we can say that schools, due to policies that were imposed upon them, have been compelled to neglect well-being. And this would really be true for the time period that started with national education reform in the UK and the Nation at Risk report in the US. So going back to the 1980s, uh, when standardized testing was really introduced as a way to rank and divide um, schools and get them to compete with each other. And what that really meant was that educators had to focus on a very narrow range of curricular subjects. And typically what got sacrificed were disciplines like physical education, uh, performing visual arts, science even in the elementary grades, while children got marched through reading, writing, and mathematics. So this neglect of well-being is something that has been pushed through policy, uh, I would suggest, and is very poignant. This has not always been the case that schools neglected well-being so systematically. Right. So it's a relatively recent phenomenon, and, and perhaps COVID-19 is, is sort of making, uh, hopefully, policymakers rethink, rethink that now that schools are sort of a, a site of welfare for many children. Right. So one of the things that the pandemic has done, it, is, it has brought to public consciousness how many children depend upon their schools for food, for shelter, for some place to be when their guardians are uh, working. Um, They've also revealed that schools are sites of ill-being for some children, children who have been bullied, children whose classmates have made it impossible for them to listen to the teacher and get on with their learning. So I think that what the pandemic has done is it has forced everything into a kind of brilliant chiaroscuro, you know, darkness and light about what is going on with our societies and our schools. And well-being is one part of that. Hmm. So let's step back and actually think about what is well-being. Like, how can we even begin to conceptualize what that would look like? Excellent. So the term well-being, which my colleague and friend Andy Hargraves and I have tried to do an archaeology on, 
it really seems to have broken into public awareness with the creation of the World Health Organization right after the Second World War. And in its original references to well-being, the World Health Organization said that well-being was not simply the absence of ill-being or negative affect or failure to, to thrive. It was a positive state of flourishing, of engagement with the world, of human development. So that's kind of the Rosetta Stone that we would go back to to identify that. And, and then the World Health Organization also called on new groups of professionals. So we would say guidance counselors in the U.S., in the UK, you might say pastoral care workers. Other countries might refer to social workers, uh, mental health counselors. But a whole group of people whose training was in psychology was really this training and this recruitment of people for these positions was accelerated in the post-World War II years. And so this was new for schools. Schools had not always had people with those roles. Those roles were assigned to teachers as part of their contribution to students' learning. So in a way, the idea then is that the, this state, this positive state that we can call well-being could be taught. Is, I mean, that was sort of the assumption? Could, could be taught or could be facilitated, could be enabled. Self-destructive behaviors could be corrected. And then, you know, you kind of get the whole explosion. If you kind of want to see it in critical terms, you'd kind of say maybe, you know, the therapeutic state or the therapeutic industry. If you wanted to see it in more positive terms, you'd say, this is fabulous. Being a human being is complicated, and we now have millions of trained professionals who can help troubled young people to develop. Right. And and so, I mean, I guess well-being, there can be so many different iterations or, or terms to even begin to talk about it. Would well-being in terms of education sort of include the focus on happiness that I know like the OECD is now pushing or even ideas like mindfulness, which you see sort of emerging in a lot of school systems? There's many different shades of well-being discourse, if we could put it that way. You know, and they would go all the way from what we had in California and in the U.S. and continued for a long time. It's still visible in some places, kind of a self-esteem movement where it's all about boosting kids' confidence and positive self-regard and self-care, all that kind of stuff. That That's definitely one strand. Um, another strand would be um, mindfulness. I did a book called The Mindful Teacher with a fourth grade teacher colleague here in Boston, Elizabeth McDonald. And there it was really about trying to help educators to uh, slow down, quiet their bodies, calm their minds, and pay better attention to what they were observing in front of them. So if you have a whole system that's telling you to get your test scores up, but kids are, are really suffering from poverty and inequality and racism, then you better pay attention to those things as a teacher. So that, that book was quite popular you know, for teachers because it said to them, it's good to stop and pay attention. It's good for you to take care of yourself. We don't need more people to leave the profession. It kind of gave them permission to do that. So you have self-esteem, you have mindfulness. And then I would say there's kind of social definitions of well-being, which um, Andy and I are, are trying to advocate for. And, and those would be things that kind of would be, is, is there a strong welfare state 
to help children in poverty? Are there policies so that if even if you're coming from a very poor working class neighborhood, you can get the assistance you need to flourish? Are there parks? Are there libraries? Are there good public services? Is environmental racism visible in, in your community? So paying attention to the social dimensions. Now, because we're both in the US, we, we, we tend to get irritated with the psychological solutions because some of the problems that we have are not gonna be resolved, even with the best positive psychology interventions in the world. If at the end of the day, you're sending kids right back out into deeply troubled communities, not through any fault of their own, but through, through policies, then we're not gonna really tackle the problem. So, so th those would just be, you know, kind of U.S.-based self-esteem movement, uh, mindfulness would be another dimension of well-being, and then social dimensions of well-being. And then, you know, then there's a whole cornucopia out there right now. And I would imagine different contexts might understand what the idea of well-being is very differently, right? I mean, if you go to China or Japan or you know, South Africa, I'm sure it's very different compared to what might be happening in the U.S. or the U.K. Right. And then I, I think I saw that recently on your program, you had done an interview with some indigenous educators and activists, yeah. right? So a lot of the research that Andy and I've done recently has been in Canada or in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., where there's large numbers of indigenous youth and indigenous communities. And, you know, what could be more culturally alienating than to ask kids from these ancient peoples to, you know, sit down and focus their attention on filling in bubbles. And, you know, I mean, honestly, the, the reason it's really important to have so many diverse cultures is because cultures can kind of go off track. So, you know, my, my own kids in their elementary school here, they had a, a principal who was didn't want the kids to throw snowballs at each other, you know, have snowball fights, play tag, do rough and tumble sports, you know, climb trees, all of these kinds of things, which children need to do. They, they need to enjoy those activities and have fun and fall down and scrape your knee and, you know, break your arm when you fall out of a tree. That's, that's what childhood's for. Let them play and let them play vigorously. And for heaven's sake, don't be so involved in trying to, you know, protect them from every little mistake. And in, in my knowledge of indigenous cultures, I, I have some, that kind of sense of physical engagement with the natural environment is prioritized. It's very important. And so schools have to change. I think that that is something that I would say about the well-being work is I hope that when the pandemic is done, we're not just going to say, okay, great, let's go back. Let's give those kids those tests again. Let's, let's get them all on technology 24-7. You know, heavens, heaven forbid that they would want to go outside and, you know, play a game of basketball or hockey or something, you know. So we, we've got to kind of correct some of these ways in which I would say mainstream middle-class cultures really lost the plot. Hmm. So, I mean, that brings up an interesting point about, you know, how do schools need to change? Or maybe they even put it a different way is how are schools getting in the way of, you know, promoting and advancing well-being? The obvious arch enemy here would be standardized testing. And, and especially its nefarious uses in the U.S. and the U.K. to, you know, shut down schools, often with very little assistance provided, get teachers telling kids that the kids have to do well on the test or otherwise, you know, they'll lose their jobs, all these 
kind of negative side effects of standardized testing. So those have got to be diminished. I would kind of love to see all these systems just removed. You know, these things didn't exist. Well, you know, in, in my education at all. And, you know, we had opportunities often to do, um, you know, book projects, work in small groups, bassling activities where you'd make things. Um, art class was important. They used to teach dance in schools, you know. Um, they used to do all kinds of things. And so we have to restore that. And so I, I'm, Pazzi is a good friend, so I'm, I'm up with him to a certain point. Um, the, the point at which I would probably stop would be that I do want our young people to be critical I want them to be socially critical. I want them to see themselves as people who can make the world a better place. And a lot of activists are not particularly happy people, <laughs> if I could say that. But thank goodness. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it is strange that there's this sort of emphasis on being happy. You must, it's sort of, that's uh, the, one of the goals in a way, is that so long as people are happy, that, that would be, they have a sense of well-being. You know, and maybe that's not the case. You can have a sense of well-being and feel all these different emotions. Right. So I, I think that the good well-being literature, and there is a fair amount of this, is that well-being is kind of an optimal experience. It's perhaps not a permanent state. And so if you can experience a sense of flow, Mihaly Csikszent Mihaly wrote about a state of flow where you kind of are so immersed in what you're doing that you have forgotten to eat, you, you, you know, and you're just experiencing this oneness with whatever you're doing, or Abraham Maslow called that a peak experience. Th those things are great. <laughs> those things can nourish us for, for years to come. And I, I think that that research shows that if you're a lab scientist or if you're an artist or a musician, you might only get that state of flow, you know, a couple of times a year. For, for In some fields, may it be only a few times during your life, you, you, you know, but you're so immersed in what you're doing, you're so fascinated by it that it, it really doesn't matter because you, you found your calling. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. The other night I was sitting out with a, a friend who he teaches the, the bass at the Berkeley School of Music. His name is Bruno Rayberg, and he teaches jazz composition. And I said, so, you know, Bruno, do you enjoy creativity? And he said, yeah, you know, I, I do enjoy creativity. And um, his wife was kind of like, well, you don't always, really. <laughs> Sometimes you're kind of frustrated. <laughs> and he said, well, I've, I've learned that if I'm frustrated by something, I just go and leave it for a while and come back later. And then, then his wife, you know, M Melissa Howe, she said, well, yeah, that's really good, but you can't do that in class if somebody is in a class, right? Well, well, well then, Will, I have to, you have to ask yourself, School is, at the Berkeley School of Music, you want to prepare young people to be able to support themselves, ideally, mm -hmm. making music. So something in the organization of school is getting in the way of what a successful jazz musician does. It, it reminds me a little bit of, um, there's a book by Camus called uh, The Myth of Sisyphus. The, you know this the the story about the someone who was condemned to push a rock up a mountain and then the rock would fall back down and then he would have to push the rock back up and he had to do it for eternity and Camus said you have to conclude that Sisyphus was happy you know and so in a way that's that's very similar to what you're sort of I think you're sort of saying is that it's in that process and in that struggle that you're going to experience all a, a very wide range of emotions but you you know that's that sort of that is part of it, and that is being that is well-being in many ways. That, that that's that's lovely. Um, 
Well, and, and if I could just um, build on that observation of, of Camus, there is a um, Zen Buddhist teacher here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Larry Rosenberg, who wrote a beautiful book called Breath by Breath. And I think it's in that book. If not, it's another one or a Dharma talk. But, but he says, you know, Sisyphus is only unhappy if he's thinking, I hate this terrible boulder. Why do I have to do this? I wish I could get a sandwich, sit down, have a beer, right? But if he's able to become one with the boulder and understand to a certain extent, it is a human condition. We, we, we are mortal creatures. So, so, you know, to a certain extent, we, we will be returning to the elements from which we emerged, then that's probably okay, right? And, and I think that the reason that these kinds of conversations are so important is there is a part of the well-being discourse that doesn't really accept the idea of struggle, of difficulty, of willpower, of resilience, it's kind of, um, it cheapens the, the process of what it really is to be human and what it really is to struggle for a worthy goal. And it's as if you, if, you know, if you struggle on a test, you are seen as failing. You know, you, you're, you're seeing, it's this, it's this sort of, your intelligence is defined as that, that score that you struggled to get. And so it becomes this individualized failure rather than sort of seen as part of the educational process, part of being human, as you said. Yeah, yeah. So I think that this is something, if, if teachers are listening to this, I heard this once many years ago at a conference, and it, it left a deep imprint upon me. A, a researcher said, you know, it's not that kids hate math or that they hate history or that they hate science. They hate the feeling of feeling stupid. And there is some shame that goes along with how we design schools, you know, some sense of humiliation. Could, could we create school atmospheres, classroom climates, networks of peer support, where there's lots of encouragement, just lots and lots of encouragement. And, you know, teachers would say, I'm really glad that you tried this much harder assignment. I like to see you really working hard, even, even if you, you don't, can't succeed with this challenge by the end of class, stick with it for a while. And, and that's right, you're ready for this level. So I think that those are really important considerations. And if I could here, I'd like to balance things. For, for me, there's two goals of school. One is to kind of help people on their path towards well-being, but then learning is a goal also. And um, it's, a, it's a kind of a separate goal. And so if you can kind of see this as a dialectic between learning and the path towards well-being, then I think that we're, we're moving in a good direction. So you're basically saying it's not only well-being that we need to be concerned about. There's, a, there's another side of this dialectic, and it's sort of the struggle between the two that we can create this synthesis that we might call education. Yeah, so we should always think dialectically. There should always be a negative dialectic, right? So it, it doesn't matter what social movement, what idea, whatever is, we, we think it's the most important. We, we need the negative part of the dialectic because every human being, every theory has some limitations, right? So, so one of the things I think for the future of education is to, I, I, I really get into it with students because like in a, in a school of education, there is a kind of a positive, upbeat, happy, let's do this, let's encourage, da, 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 da. Mm. But then, you know, we, we, we do want some some malcontents, 
<laughs> you know, John Lewis, late John Lewis called it good trouble. <laughs> you know, I, I did a lot of work with the community organizers earlier. And, you know, like we would joke, you know, if you're not getting into trouble, you're not doing your job. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be thoughtful about how you do that. You don't want to just make a mess of things. But there are injustices that have to be rectified. There is climate change that has to be reversed. So there's some things we really should think about. And that, that's where the learning comes in. And so I'm often careful when I talk about mindfulness, by the way, that there's mindfulness as kind of a state of non-judgmental, following the breath, clearing the mind, getting rid of all of that clutter, right? But there's also mindfulness as cognition, um, which you know, in, the, in the Buddhist tradition would be right judgment. You, you do have to make judgments. You do have to make decisions. And so even if we kind of say, well, we don't want to be judgmental, you, right now you and I are deciding to have this conversation. People who are listening in are deciding that this could be of interest to them or could be important, right? So that was another Camus quote, right? Actually was to live is to judge. If you're a human being and you're alive, you're constantly forming judgments and, and that's probably another thing, you know, a kind of a lover's quarrel, because I am a child of the 60s generation and Woodstock and all that stuff. But sometimes it probably went a little bit too far in terms of things like, you know, friends will say, well, that just sounds so judgmental. Well, look, you know, in the U.S. right now, we're in a political crisis, right? And we, we should be able to look objectively at what's going on and not, you know, just kind of try and say, well, you know, let's look at it from the another point of view. I mean, you know, maybe there was some election fraud somewhere. Maybe Venezuela and Cuba and China did get them. No. <laughs> you know, there's certain things where we should just say there's no evidence for this claim. And life is short. And so, and that's where judgment can help us. So, yeah, yes, I do think that there's a dialectic between well-being then and learning. Th th those are two things. And then there might be some other things that I would ask us to throw in, like beauty. We never discussed beauty in education and aesthetics. You know, so why is it that people are moved to tears with certain kinds of music or movies or literature? Something's going on that's moving them deeply, and we got to get aesthetics back into education. Do you think this is going to be possible? But, you know, I mean, it seems as if the standardized examinations are so dominant you know not only in America but in 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 here in the UK they have you know big tests but also in so many countries around the world and this says nothing of of PISA which you know many countries are are judging themselves against um, other countries based on the PISA rankings I mean do you are you hopeful that we're going the future of education is actually going to be able to see this dialectic between well-being and learning and then maybe even bring in issues of aesthetics and beauty and morality? I don't know. I, I can't honestly, you know, obviously, um, I, I, well, recently I was going back through some journals that I kept when I was in high school and I was so idealistic and so wanted to make the world a better place. And um, the last few years have been pretty rough <laughs> for, for people who had, you know, those aspirations. But what I would say is this, is that even if I could look back on my career, now I'm older, I'm 65, and I could say, well, many things that I tried to do simply didn't work. If I talk about these with my students or with educators, they're often, they don't necessarily mind that I didn't succeed or other people like me, they're just happy that I did my, you know, I've done my best. 
So I think that that's probably a really good long-term goal is, is to kind of say, well, um, we, we, we have to try. Yes, there are these massive systems. And, and it's, even, you know, it's even deeper because it really gets embedded in the cultures, right? So in some cultures, like in South Korea right now, they, they've implemented some policies to have some electives, to have an exam-free semester in middle school, to try and do some integrated curricula. But if it's really an overwhelming societal consensus, it's really hard to get parents excited about their kids taking a really cool elective that you know, pulls together music and history and literature, right? I mean, it's, it sounds like the Yatori education reform in Japan in the 90s where, you know, trying to slow things down and then, you know, not have the rat race of doing well on these tests. And today it's seen as a complete failure. And in fact, it's sort of, Yatori is known as, people say it as a way to sort of explain any policy that just is a complete failure. It's sort of pegged and named Yatori. Yes. So that for me would be the tragedy of the commons, which um, your um, UK listeners would would probably know, but they wouldn't in the US, which is when the commons was being enclosed as part of um, agricultural industrial revolution in in England. I don't know so much about the other parts of the UK. Everybody started competing for their own individual plots of land and the common good was depleted, right? And I think that's where we are. That's where neoliberalism has brought us. If, if I could say that, you know, intensely competitive world with lots of anxiety, lots of depression, which for me is connected with the collapse of the, the good parts of the older industrial capitalism where, you know, you could go and you could work at a Ford motor plant or at Rolls-Royce plant and you could do that your whole life and a family could live off of it. And and there were tight-knit senses of community. Now that's been replaced with everybody's an entrepreneur, everybody's out gaming the system, every person for themselves, and it's a heartless, it's a heartless way to design a world. So we, we have to try. Well, you know, we just have to try. I, I am heartened by our young people. You know, in the U.S., we have a lot of youth activists, all different kinds of issues, racial justice, access to technologies for kids with learning disabilities, environmentalists, all, all kinds of people who are galvanized right now. And that makes this time very exciting. I mean, and that's, you know, and that point is not just in the United States. There, there's student protests in Thailand. There's student protests in Hong Kong. And, you know, Greta Thunberg has led a student protest movement worldwide about climate change. And so, you, the, you know, there were student protests about fees in South Africa. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, and students are really in the vanguard. And that really is this, you know, amazing moment to bear witness to and hopefully support and see grow. So those are good things. And then there's an interesting thing, which is, say, low-income youth of color need classes, kind of like in, you know, the Latinx diaspora or in black studies or these kinds of things. Because if you're surrounded by a culture that's giving you a lot of negative messages, same thing for LGBTQ youth or indigenous youth or white working class youth, I, I think need to be mentioned um, in, in this also. Uh, young people need some positive examples. They don't all have to be positive. I mean, some of them could be negative, but they need to see themselves in literature and in history. 
and they, they need to feel like they're part of the narrative of the human condition. So those are things that can happen in schools also. But then the schools need some freedom. So to a certain extent, we, we need to work with civil society organizations, with parents, policymakers, everyone to kind of try and figure out, first of all, can we create a more egalitarian society? Because when societies are so grotesquely unequal, it puts everybody on edge. Everybody's just on edge. And it doesn't need to be that way. So if I could just tell you, if I could tell your, um, your listeners, Will, we weren't sure whether we were going to be able to do this podcast this morning because I have a power outage in my home. Now, I live in a very affluent suburb of Boston, right? But the infrastructure in New England is quite old. It doesn't keep up. And so several times every winter, the power goes out. So even in the more affluent communities, there's just been a neglect of infrastructure. And the money's gone into weapons. The money's gone, well, there's been huge tax breaks. Money's gone in all different kinds of places where it didn't need to go to rebuild this society. And so it really shouldn't be the case that you and I are, are kind of trying to figure out, well, are we going to be able to talk because our infrastructure's so poor? Yeah, and these are, I mean, and the way to think about it is that these are political decisions, right? It's not, it's not just the, the way the world works. It's sort of these collective choices that are being made by our representatives, at least in the U.S.'s case. In the, in the U.S., uh, for, for sure. I, I was hiking, actually, the Coast to Coast Trail in the U.K. the week after Brexit, and so, you know, it's having lots of conversations with people. And I don't want to kind of just let, you know, people like myself, I think, you know, kind of off the hook. Because, you know, if you look at the map of the U.S., the people that voted for Trump overwhelmingly are, are living in very poor rural areas. And because I've worked with these remote rural schools in the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of poverty. <laughs> there's a lot of small towns and, you know, the, the lumber mills have shut down, the mines have closed. Hunting and fishing, you can still live off of that to a certain extent, but it's, it's not easy. So I hope that one of the things that the, the Biden-Harris administration will do will be to address rural poverty and, and really come up with some strategies where people don't have to leave because a lot of people live in rural communities because they have very old or frail parents um, that they're looking after, and they're not going to abandon them to move to a metropolitan region. Well, that's something we will have to, to keep our eyes on. Dennis Shirley, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure of talking today. It was wonderful to have the chance to meet you, Will, and um, keep up the good work, and let's just keep our shoulders to the wheel of history. Dennis Shirley is a professor of education at Boston College. He's co-edited a new special issue of the ECNU Review of Education entitled Beyond Well-Being, Educating for Wholeness and Purpose. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushi Guava, Fatih Octus, and Ing Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. 
please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.